Fanny's consequence increased on the departure of her cousins, becoming, as she then did, the only young woman in the drawing room, the only occupier of... I'm Ellen. And I'm Harriet, and this is Reading Jane Austen. This week, we're looking at chapters 22 to 25 of Mansfield Park. And, as has happened in the past, today we're joined by my partner Michael, who'll be talking about the Navy. Hello. But let's start with 100-word summaries. Well, I'll go first, because mine is actually incredibly bland. Normally I try to get in bits and pieces of detail, but this time I've just gone for a completely bald overview. I found the same thing. I found it fitted into 100 words, no problem. Yes, (laughs) unusually I didn't have to cut anything. Yes, same here. So, in the absence of other company... Fanny and Mary become friends, and Fanny and Edmund are invited to the parsonage for dinner. Henry, who has returned briefly, decides he will stay longer and try to make Fanny fall in love with him. Mary protests, but not very much. William arrives for a visit, which delights Fanny. There's a larger dinner at the parsonage where some people play whist and others speculation. During both parsonage dinners, there is talk of Thornton Lacey, the living Edmund will be taking up. Oh no, well I haven't even got as much detail as you have in it. (laughs) Fanny, with Edmund's encouragement, begins visiting Mary Crawford regularly. Mary continues to vacillate in her mind over marriage to Edmund, while Edmund's plans for ordination proceed steadily. He and Fanny are invited to dinner at the Grants. Henry arrives unexpectedly and decides to make Fanny fall in love with him, unaware of her revulsion. To Fanny's delight, William Price, back from seven years at sea, visits Mansfield and is much approved. The whole Mansfield party is invited to the Grants, where Mary is forced to realise that Edmund intends to be a working parson, and Sir Thomas notices Henry's obvious interest in Fanny. You did get in a lot more detail than mine. No, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> Anyhow, where I wanted to start is the Fanny and Mary friendship. Because that scene in the shrubbery, what Fanny is saying, it's terribly stilted the way she talks, which we've seen before. Well, we've seen twice before. Yeah. We saw her talking about the stars. And quite early on when she was talking about the dear old pony. An article we were sent a copy of called A Subdued Gaiety, The Comedy of Mansfield Park, which is by Pam Perkins. She describes the musings over the pony as stilted exclamatory style and says Jane Austen could write better dialogue than that. The style is unnaturally stiff and affected, particularly given the context in which the speech appears. And that happens again when she's talking about the stars and again in this scene in the shrubbery with Mary. And I think you said at one stage, but I might have edited it out, the way Fanny talks almost sounds like Mary Bennett. Well, not quite, but what Pam Perkins actually says is really so lovely. I'll just read it out. Yeah. Fanny's idea of light conversation is to muse on the past, present and future of the shrubbery in which they are sitting, then to segue into a lecture on the nature of memory. When she eventually notices that her companion is untouched and inattentive, she does make an attempt to shift the conversation, but can only hit upon another subject for a lecture, the evergreen. Yes. And she goes on, not only is the tone inappropriate to casual conversation, but also, as Mola points out, the thoughts are commonplace. 
why is she inflicting this on yes. on Mary? Why does she think Mary will be interested in her musings? I've got to say, in some of these bits, my eyes just glaze over when I'm reading them and I can't concentrate. When I started commenting on them, your response was, I don't remember them being like that. I don't think I've ever read them. Though one thing with it is, whenever Fanny has talked like this before, it's been with Edmund. This is the first time we've seen her talk to someone else. And yet she really, she just doesn't get the kind of conversation Mary wants to have. Because, you know, when Mary joins in, like Fanny, she uses a quote, the bit about the doge. But it's so much more lightweight and amusing and not heavy and ponderous like Fanny's. I've always thought, and I'm probably influenced by talking of Jane Austen here, that the friendship between Fanny and Mary is really, Fanny doesn't actually care that much about Mary and it's all in Mary's imagination. Well, it does say in the book, an intimacy resulting principally from Miss Crawford's desire of something new and which had little reality in Fanny's feelings. But I started to think maybe this is the first time Fanny has had someone else she can just talk to. And she's not very good at conversation, which is why it comes out this way. But she is actually perhaps more relaxed and unguarded around Mary Crawford than she is around anyone else except Edmund. I've always thought that it's that Fanny has lived her entire life in a household where nobody listens to her except Edmund occasionally when he remembers to. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not surprising that she's not very good at it and would embrace the opportunity of having someone listen to what she has to say. I think Edmund does listen to her, but, you know... That's... When he remembers to. No, I don't think when he remembers to. When they're together, he listens to her. So I just think that even though this authorial passage says that Fanny doesn't actually get anything out of this friendship, she does get an opportunity to talk to someone. Yes. And then again, if you step back and you look at her ideas, then, you know, they're perfectly sensible things for a girl of 17, 18 yeah. to be thinking about. I mean, perhaps not in that phraseology. Yeah. <laughs> but to think about memory, to think about evergreens... She's still new to life. Yeah. The thing that I felt was coming right through this whole section is the sort of tension between Mary and Edmund about the terms on which they'd get married. I mean, it's always undercurrent. Mary's been hoping that Edmund will pull back from wanting to be a clergyman and there's no way he will. But Mary keeps on trying to suggest conditions... I mean, there's the part where she pretends to be thinking about Mrs Rushworth, but really visualising a a situation she could handle. There's the bit later when they're talking about Thornton Lacey and she keeps having this vision in her head of this nice house Mm. and a life she could could tolerate it. And then Sir Thomas comes in and says, no, you've got to live there all the time. Yeah, of course, these are the chapters where we get the bit about absenteeism and how Sir Thomas doesn't approve of it but there's no need to go into that again because you talked about it last time. The other thing that we get in this chapter is of course Henry's decision that he wants to make Fanny fall in love with him and Mary's response to it. I mean I suppose this is just the picture that Mary had. She's still thinking of you know these young girls during their first season. There's somebody they fall in love with. And I think she's seeing it to start with in not much more than that. I still don't think it's a nice thing. 
but somebody is a sort of a Rocky Napier from Excellent Women. Yeah, but see, I, I reread Excellent Women recently with that in mind, and I do think the difference is Rocky Napier is charming by default, whereas in this scene, Henry is actually saying, and I think this is Henry's vanity speaking, Fanny Price seems to disapprove of me. I am going to deliberately set out to make her fall in love with me. I think that's not something Rocky Napier does. I don't think he knows she disapproves of him yet. All he provokes from her is a mention of the disapproval of the whole play thing. Yeah. What he has no idea oh. about is how bitterly she disapproves yeah. of his pursuit of Mariah. I think Henry Crawford is, is a textbook narcissist. Yes. That he sees that she does not fawn over him as he expects young women to do and therefore feels that for the sake of his own ego, which is all that matters to him, he must prove his superiority by making... Yeah, well, he says to Mary, I must try to get the better of this. Her looks say, I will not like you. I am determined not to like you. And I say she shall. It's the language of a predator. And, yes. and that's why I disagree with you with your defence of Mary, because... She hears him so overtly talk in these predatory terms and not only doesn't admonish it, she facilitates it. She does admonish it a little bit at first, but then she basically seems to think, well, you're only here for a fortnight and you're only going to make her fall a little bit in love with you and maybe it will do her good. She's trying to defend falling in love with Henry as a sort of rite of passage yeah. in coming out. But you have to have a crush on some yeah. older man. But, but of course the narrator, and again Jane Austen uses these words very deliberately, says she left Fanny to her fate. I mean, my initial reaction when Mary Crawford first says, oh no, you can't do that, I was thinking, good for Mary. And then you have this complete turnaround and I am with the narrator that she has left Fanny to her fate and that's just not very nice. That's what I see, Mary's defence of herself in her head. Yeah. Because she loves her brother and she doesn't want to see anything wrong. So she can see him. Yeah. as being a good experience for a young girl to yeah. be in love with this person and then move on. I think in a post-Me Too world, it's hard not to read this and see Henry as a predator and Mary as his enabler. Yeah. The next thing that happens is William arrives. Yes. And this is something I find quite interesting, that he's so affectionate to Fanny... He comments on her hairstyle. He says he'd like to see her dance. He seems to see a Fanny that is so different from the withdrawn, quiet, self-distrusting Fanny that we and everyone else have seen. It makes me wonder, what are her letters to him like? Is she somehow finding amusing things to tell him in the letters? And what it makes me think of, in Mary Grant Bruce's book, Back to Billabong, where Tommy has been writing letters to her brother about all the amusing things And he has been reading the letters out to the other soldiers and amusing them all. And then when he comes home, he realises how badly treated she's been by her aunt. And I can't see Fanny writing amusing letters, but she must have been writing something to continue this genuine affection William has for her. If she's writing letters like the way she's talking to Mary, I don't think William would have been so desperately keen to come and see her at Mansfield. I don't think she has to have written funny letters in order to have written warm and sincere letters. That's what Mm. I've always assumed, Uh that that she is much more open with him about her feelings than she is with anyone else, that she can be 
less guarded, mm. more open, without and, having to be funny and, and have a different personality. And it could be a lot of them were responses to what he'd said. Yeah. He yes. said, this happened to me, and she writes back with her feelings. Oh, you know, when you were in that danger, you know, I, I feel so strongly for you. Mm. And not really talking much about Mansfield at all, mm -hmm. but basically responding to William. You know, William is giving his life and she's reflecting it back. Mm -hmm. Also, he remembers her before she yeah. goes into the panopticon that is, that is the Bertram yeah. household. Because, of course, we get that lovely brief snippet of their childhood where he talks about them both dancing to the organ grinder. Actually, I think that responding to him could well be what she was doing. Mm -hmm. That what she really made William feel was anything he had to say was really important and interesting. Mm. And he's a great one for talking yes. about himself. Yeah, when he's there, everybody loves him and responds to him and he tells these wonderful stories of his life in the Navy. Everyone responds so positive to William and so negatively to Fanny. Yes. One of the things I think we should comment on is the actual tour de force of chapter 25 i just think that is the most fantastic set piece of the dinner party at the grants and it reads in one way as a simple narrative of what happened and yet manages to make us aware of what so many of the characters are thinking a few episodes ago when we were talking about subleton i said some people argue that that scene by the gate at the ha-ha is very symbolic and the game of speculation is another one where if you're trying to find symbolism in Jane Austen, you could say it's here where Mary has secured William's knave at an exorbitant rate and says, there, I will stake my last like a woman of spirit. No cold prudence for me. I am not born to sit still and do nothing. If I lose the game, it shall not be from not striving for it. And that is just Mary giving a specific example of a broader generalisation about her character. And also, of course, what's coming through is how currently angry she is about what's happening with Edmund. Yes, but I don't think, though, what she says there describes anything she actually does. But it's how she sees herself. But does she do any risking of herself? I see it differently. I think it's her saying, I will only marry you on my terms you say yes or not. Maybe it's not a, an exact one-for-one one match, but what we see in this game of speculation is Mary basically, she wins, but at the same time it costs her more to win than the winning is. It's a suggestion, I suppose, that things are not going to go well for Mary, but it's not an exact picture of how they don't go well for Mary. No, it's not. It's just that I really do find it difficult to see the game of speculation as being symbolic. Uh -huh. I mean, you'd have to do a terrible lot of twisting uh -huh. to find anything that Mary Crawford did, which was risking everything on not exactly one throw of the dice, yeah. but that sort of thing, yeah. and winning but at a price that she wasn't prepared to pay. Yeah. Now, I find it terribly difficult to twist anything that happens into that pattern. Uh -huh. I just think it's a wonderful set piece. In one way, it's a simple narrative of what happened, and yet it manages to make us aware of what so many of the characters, at least of what Mary, Henry, Fanny and Sir Thomas are thinking. Mm. Now, if, for example, we get Fanny's 
total dislike, distrust, rejection of Henry Crawford as being there. That is there. We get Henry's attempts to make Fanny fall in love with him by his teaching her the rules and also, of course, his... And again, it's so funny, his management of Lady Bertram by not letting her see her cards. But also... Mary having to hear what's going on about Thornton Lacey. And we're hardly told, but we know enough of Mary's feelings. Yeah. Also, by the end, we get Sir Thomas noticing that Henry is paying attention to Fanny. Mm. Actually, I suppose you could say that part of the reason behind Mary's risky play at speculation and her statements about being willing to risk everything is simply influenced by the fact that she's really angry at the time that she's really angry with Edmund that she's really angry that she doesn't have as much influence over him as she thought she did that he's just dug his heels in that she will have to make all the concessions yes and she's already made some in that she's coming to terms with living in the country and she feels like he's not making yes well he isn't well no he's not you know he's under sir thomas's thumb he's Mm. and also he's had all his life preparing to be you know to know he has to be a clergyman and thinking through what it means Look, I've got a a big extra point I want to make. I really wanted to say this time, and I want to get it said, is my gradual coming to what I think is why I feel the way I do about Fanny. And that is, you start with Fanny as this little orphan child, she's not an orphan, but living with unsympathetic relations Mm. and I have no idea if there were predecessors but there's certainly a huge quantity of followers you know you think from the 1840s where you've got Jane Eyre and Oliver Twist and David Copperfield then you know right through to the ones that I loved when I was a sort of an eight, nine-year-old, which was Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm and Anne of Green Gables and Pollyanna and coming right down to the present day where we have Harry Potter Mm. who comes into that pattern and it's a pattern that puts you totally on side with this ill-treated heroine. I suppose... Before that, you do have Cinderella, after all. Oh, well, it's the Cinderella's. Well, I don't know what came before yeah. Jane Austen. Yeah. King Arthur. That's right. King Arthur fits in there, yeah. too. So you're basically, you're engaged with this person who's with relatives that don't understand and don't appreciate them, but you, the reader, appreciate them, and you, the reader, want to see them come out on top at the end. And so right through, you're interested in them. And in a sense, you don't really have to like them. We're totally interested in them. We're caught up in their fate. Are they going to be happy? Are they going to come out of all this feeling happy? And so with Fanny, what we've got is Jane Austen picking up a classic character which Pan Perkins calls the Bernie-esque heroine, who's this very good girl. But Jane Austen has got the really good girl and she's looking at her and you see her jealousies, you see her fighting with all these parts of her personality. You see this happening and yet you're for her because right from the start, you know, you want things to go well. Now it occurs to me that this may even have been what Jane Austen wanted to do, that she wanted to take up 
a character like this and say, look, that's not what they're like. <laughs> this is what yeah. a Bernie-esque heroine is like in real life. Yeah. She starts off being put down. This is how a girl like this tries to be good and what she encounters. And mm. that is interesting and that's why you care about Fanny or why I care about Fanny. Mm. She's shy, she's priggish, she's sickly <laughs> and yet you care what happens to her mm. because you've been caught up in this standard narrative of mm. your sympathies are with this person. It's just that the Out of Green Gables and Rebecca's, they're much more exciting characters. <laughs> and she's not priggish in isolation. I mean, Sir Thomas is incredibly priggish. Edmund is yeah. exceptionally priggish. You think she's less priggish than they are, do you? Well... I think she's equally priggish, but she's not pompous in the insufferable well, way. Well, she never gets a chance, they does are. she? <laughs> That's one of the things, again, I like in the Pam Perkins article. Or she quotes somebody who says, well, it's all, all right being terribly good like this, but if nobody notices, are you being a good influence in society? <laughs> but I feel I've sort of come up with the way I think about Fanny. Okay, well, in terms of favourite sentences, I know Michael actually had a favourite sentence he wanted to share this time, which he hasn't done in the other times he's come on. All right, let's hear it, Michael. Except Ellen has already read out the first half of my favourite sentence at the very beginning, but that's okay. That allows me to truncate. She had hitherto held so humble a third, it was impossible for her not to be more looked at, more thought of and attended to than she had ever been before. And... Where is Fanny became no uncommon question, even without her being wanted for anyone's convenience. Did you want to say why that's your favourite sentence? Well, I like the irony that the major change is demonstrated by the fact that people are not only ever noticing whether she's there or not based on them... Wanting her to do something for them. Wanting her to do something for them. Well, I mean, it's again, it's just that Jane Austen able Mm. to sort of get four or five meanings into a few simple words that on the surface seem to be straight, descriptive narrative. yes. The one I've chosen shows the extent of Mary's acceptance of possible marriage before she hears of the coming ordination. Mary is supposed to be talking about what it's going to be like when Mrs Rushworth comes. And she says she spent the last five months in the country and she'd never have expected to be able to bear it. Yeah. But she says she can even suppose it pleasant to spend half the year in the country. She says an elegant, moderate-sized house in the centre of a family collections, continued engagements among them, commanding the first society in their neighbourhood, looked up to perhaps as leading in even more than those of larger fortune, and turning from the cheerful round of such amusements to nothing worse than a tete-a-tete with the person one feels most agreeable in the world. And she says, we don't have to pity Mrs Rushworth for that. But of course, what she's saying is she's visualising a possible marriage to Edmund. And could she stand it? And if it was like that, yes, she could. And I'd find it just terribly sad. Here she is trying to build up her hopes over and over again they keep saying no it's not going to be like that 
I've gone for quite a short one this time. It's where Lady Bertram asks Sir Thomas whether whist or speculation would amuse her most. And Sir Thomas thinks about it for a bit and then recommends speculation. And it says, he was a whist player himself and perhaps might feel that it would not much amuse him to have her for a partner. (laughs) Michael and I had the long ones, you've got the short one. I think it's quite an achievement to find a short sentence in Mansfield Park. Well, my others, I just really focused on Lady Bertram this time. There was, I will ask Sir Thomas as soon as he comes in whether I can do without her. I think that is beautiful, that one. Yeah. Yeah. And then the lead into the one I did read was, what shall I do, Sir Thomas, whist or speculation, which will amuse me most? (laughs) Yes. For this episode, the characters we're talking about are Dr and Mrs Grant. Actually, I'd like to fill in a bit of what I see as the backstory of Dr Grant. Uh The fact that he is Dr Grant would suggest to the book's first readers that he had stayed on at his college at whatever university he'd been to, probably as a fellow of the college, or that is, a salaried teaching member of its staff. Uh Uh-huh and at the same time gained a second degree, almost certainly, I think, in theology. Off the top of my head, is there any other clergyman in Jane Austen who's a doctor? Only the one that that Anne Steele is in. Oh, yes, Dr Davies, who's not appearing in the book. (laughs) Yes. But what happened between getting his degree and turning up as a married man at Mansfield. You think, don't you, he wasn't newly married when they, he... they don't feel newly married to me. They feel like they've been married a while. She is yes. so accustomed to dealing with his, his quirks, shall we yes. say. Well, something must have happened between him being a fellow and turning up at Mansfield because fellows were not allowed to marry. Uh-huh. But it made it perfectly easy for the fellows in these colleges because all the colleges owned the presentation of livings all around the countryside Mm -hmm. and every time one of the clergy in these livings died, it became available to the fellows. So what would have seemed the explanation of this marriage earlier is that Dr Grant took one of the livings when it was his turn and that would have put him in a position to marry a nice domesticated lady who knew how to make him comfortable, Mm. like Mrs Grant. But I think whereas Mary said clergymen never try for anything, they're not ambitious, we don't see that with Dr Grant at all. I think with Dr Grant we see somebody who really is quite ambitious. I think we have to see him as somebody who was still working as a scholar, who was still making contributions to theological debates or to controversies about church politics in the expectation that this would move him up the hierarchy of church officers. Now, when Mrs Grant talks about going to London, she says somebody would have to commend Dr Grant to the Deanery of Westminster that is Westminster Abbey, or St Paul's, that's St Paul's Cathedral. Mm -hmm. And so what this shows is that their eyes are set on promotion through the organisation of cathedrals. 
which Harriet and I know a little bit about because we read Henrietta's House by Elizabeth Googe when we were very young. <laughs> and that told you all about the people who live in a cathedral close. Mm. The, the, well, particularly the, um, the canons, the deans and the archdeacon. Mm. But here, as everywhere in Jane Austen's England, getting on in the church depended on interest. And he had patrons and supporters who he hoped would use their interest on his behalf. Because we get told right at the end, Dr Grant, through an interest on which he had almost ceased to form hopes, succeeded to a stall in Westminster. Succeeding to a stall at Westminster was in fact insider slang for becoming a canon of Westminster Abbey one of the group of clerics who, with the dean and the archdeacon, conducted the business of the cathedral. What must have happened was a canon must have died, and when it came to electing a new one, someone whose influence in the chapter was strong must have campaigned hard for Dr Grant's election, which suggests he must have been doing a little bit more than eating and giving the occasional sermon while at Mansfield. <laughs> but of course, the other thing we get continually about Dr Grant is food. As Mary says, he must have his palate consulted in everything. There's the discussion early where he doesn't believe the apricots from the Moor Park tree are any good. But then when I searched through it, I actually discovered either he's very fussy or his cook isn't very good when it comes to preparing poultry. Because first of all, he's disappointed about a green goose. And later he's ill because he fancied the pheasant was tough and sent it away. Yes. And then after that, we have the turkey that cook insists they'll have to eat the next day. So that's what leads in the end to what Tom hoped for in the beginning when Tom said that he was a short-necked, apoplectic sort of fellow and plied well with good things would soon pop off. Yeah. And of course he does. After three great institutional dinners, he dies. Yeah. So that's basically what does for him in the end as well. Can I go back to the poultry reference? Yeah. Because I think what we don't think today, because eating chicken in particular is now an everyday thing, the continuous references to eating poultry shows... Where their money went. Yes, is an extravagance. Yeah. Eating poultry, particularly turkey, was very expensive. I'm sure it was their own turkey. I disagree. Turkeys were not something that ordinary people kept at this time. The turkey in particular, you would have, they would have had to have bought in. What about the goose? I mean, they would have kept plenty of geese. Yes, yes, they, they would have kept geese. And what about the pheasant? That would have been a present from somebody who'd yes, been out who, shooting. Who'd, yeah. been, who'd been out Edmund shooting. Edmund or Tom or someone like that. So that's Dr Grant, but then Mrs Grant is this lovely woman and she does, as Mary said, she spends her whole life basically placating Dr Grant. I was thinking it's kind of like Charlotte Lucas spends the rest of her life managing Mr Collins. Yes. Dr Grant, I think, is in many ways a superior person to Mr Collins. Well, he preaches these good sermons. Yes, and he is an intelligent, well-read, educated man. He just happens to also be selfish and... And and a sulk. She has also presumably married Dr Grant because she's not a pretty woman, and so she 
She goes into it with her eyes open. But she probably goes into it with a lot more respect for him. Yes. I mean, what she's seeing is this clergyman on a sort of career path. Yeah, but when he complains about the Moor Park, she's the one who placates Mrs Norris. Oh, um, oh she's the, sweet about it, The, yes. the whist table is formed really for the amusement of Dr Grant by his attentive wife. She's always making sure everything goes smoothly for him, maybe just to make it easier for her so he's not going to sulk all the time. But she is just a lovely person. When Mary's gone home and said Edwin won't be able to come to Southerton with us because he's staying with his mother, Mrs Grant says, I will come and stay with Lady Bertram. When Mary comes home and says, we can't find anyone to play the cottager's wife, at the request of Miss Crawford, Mrs Grant had, with her usual good humour, agreed to undertake the part for which Fanny had been wanted. And then, of course, in all the complaints that happen about the play, one of them is that she spoils everything by laughing, which again just shows her as being a good-humoured... I suppose all of that, absolutely I agree with. But I also get this feeling that Mrs Grant, she's having a nice time. She's, She's got all these interests. She's got this reasonable income to play with. She's taken over this parsonage with a sort of fairly neglected garden, which she's built up into this lovely shrubbery. Yeah. It's a shame she doesn't have children, because she'd probably be a lovely mother. Yes. But yeah, and then it says later that her pleasant manners and cheerful conformity made her always valuable amongst the young people. So she's popular, but the other plus she has is she sometimes, I think, maybe convinces herself to see things a certain way when it comes to Mary and Henry, but she absolutely is appalled at any concept that Mariah might be flirting with Henry. When she says, I rather wonder Julia is not in love with Henry. And Mary says, I dare say she is. I imagine both sisters are. And her response is, both. No, no, that must not be. Do not give him a hint of it. Think of Mr Rushworth. And then but there's that lovely she, bit that comes afterwards when she says they'll send him away, though he is Henry. Yeah, she says, if you have such a suspicion, something must be done. And as soon as the play is over, we will talk to him seriously and make him know his own mind. And if he means nothing, we will send him off, though he is Henry, for a time. I think that is just such a lovely feeling behind that response. Yeah. She indulges Henry, but not to the excessive extent that Mary does. Yes, absolutely. And she does say that if he's doing the wrong thing, we must send him away. Yes. But she is somewhat willfully blind. Yes. But then, of course, the other thing going for both the Grants is that Mrs Norris hates them. Yes. (laughs) That's got to be a plus for anybody. And it says that they had their faults and Mrs Norris soon found them out. Basically, Mrs Norris just talks about how much butter and eggs are regularly consumed. And and then there's the argument about the Moor Park. And there's when the Grants invites Edmund and Fanny to dinner. And Mrs Norris says, I hope you'll have a very agreeable day and find it delightful. But I must observe that five is the very awkwardest of all possible numbers (laughs) to sit down to table. And I cannot but be surprised that such an elegant lady as Mrs Grant should not contrive better. I said, the fact that Mrs Norris hates them is a definite plus for them. It's really funny the way he keeps on teasing Mrs Norris. He tries to needle her, you know, like saying that about the Moor Park. (laughs) I'm not convinced that's active needling. I think it's just he's one of those somewhat oblivious people. He could be. People who fact checks her, regardless (laughs) of how diplomatic it is. That he says, oh no, it's definitely not a Moor Park. Yes. (laughs) 
So as I said at the start, the reason Michael has joined us today is to talk about the Navy. So over to you. So today I want to talk about the Royal Navy in Jane Austen's time. More specifically, I want to provide some background on what a midshipman was, how one passed for a lieutenant, and the central role of interest, the system of patronage that was a central part of career advancement in the Royal Navy at the time. Later in this series, I'll come back to talk about the Royal Marines, which were, and indeed still are, a separate branch of the military. And later, when we finally get to Persuasion, my favourite Jane Austen novel, I'll talk about the higher ranks of Captain and Admiral. So Jane Austen was writing at a time when Britain had become the world's preeminent naval power. At battles such as St Vincent, the Nile and Trafalgar, the Royal Navy comprehensively defeated much larger French and Spanish fleets. Remind us of the date. Okay, so Trafalgar was in 1805, and from that point, Britain was completely dominant. The Royal Navy's power would allow Britain to expand and maintain its economic and imperial power throughout the 19th and well into the 20th century. And so that means that throughout William's time at sea, that was in this period when Britain was totally dominant. Yes, so William's career would not have included major battles. The very fact that William ship has a chaplain tends to indicate that it was a larger ship, and so he would have been on blockade duty, he would have been on convoy duty, that he wasn't on a fighting frigate. Yes. Jane Austen had strong family connections to the Navy, with her two youngest brothers, Francis and Charles, both being naval officers. Jane Austen's personal experience of the Navy mirrors Fanny's in both its knowledge and its ignorance. William in Mansfield Park, like Captain Wentworth in Persuasion, also presents us with an idealised version of a major cultural shift in the Royal Navy at the time, its increased gentrification. In Mansfield Park, we can see William as an exemplar of the new Navy, in contrast with the old Navy, represented by the venal and morally dubious Admiral Crawford and his circle of vices and rears. In William, we are probably also seeing an idealised version of Charles, the younger of her two naval brothers. Charles was closest in age to Jane, and he is known to have written regularly to her. He also bought Jane and Cassandra crosses in the same way William does for Fanny in the novel. Although he could afford topaz and William could just afford amber? (laughs) I'm not sure there would have been a price difference. I think topaz versus amber is more about about what port you're in. He bought the cross at Sicily. Ah, okay. Sicily seems an unlikely place to buy amber. Well, there's a footnote in my Cambridge edition. Amber being cheaper than topaz, a gemstone, implies William's more limited resources, since as a midshipman he would earn about a quarter of the pay of a lieutenant and his prize money would also be much less. Yes, but, you know, amber is from the Baltic. So, becoming a midshipman was, in essence, a form of apprenticeship. There are actually two ways of becoming a midshipman. The new way was to become a cadet at the Royal Naval Academy at Portsmouth, which is what Jane Austen's brothers did. However, this was relatively uncommon and was widely looked down on within the Navy, and I am quite 
confident that William did not go to the Royal Naval Academy, that rather he went to sea at about the age of 12 or 13, rated as a captain's servant. The granting of such a position was entirely the ship captain's perquisite and was in fact a fiercely guarded privilege. Gaining a midshipman's post therefore relied, even at the very beginning of one's career, on interest. The boy having family or other social, political or economic connections to the captain. The captain was then responsible for the boy's naval education, which included both practical skills in sailing the ship. Midshipmen, for example, were colloquially known as reefers because they were light. They could be sent up to the uppermost masts and reef the sails in high winds. Midshipmen were usually given a sea daddy, an experienced, able seaman who would teach them practical skills like knotting and splicing and not forgetting the all-important skill of sewing. However, by Jane Austen's time, there was an increasing emphasis on more academic skills like mathematics and astronomy that were so essential to blue sea navigation. In other words, navigating a ship outside sight of land. Which might explain Fanny's interest in astronomy shown in the book. Well, not explain, but be an aspect of. Well, her interest in astronomy probably reflects William talking about it in his letters. Mm. Yes, so there was this growing interest in these more academic skills like mathematics, astronomy, surveying and map making. We meet William in the novel at a critical point in any would-be naval officer's career. So the first thing to say is that a midshipman is not an officer. A midshipman is someone training to be or aspiring to be an officer. He has served his sea time, which is indeed seven years, and is preparing to pass for a lieutenant. So what does that mean? Well, that involved going before a board of post-captains who would review the candidates' journals and logs, as well as their captain's reports on their conduct, before asking them a series of questions to satisfy themselves of the candidate's fitness to hold a commission. So in contrast to army officers that I talked about in a previous series, naval officers had to prove that they were actually competent and had the skills required to undertake their duties in order to pass for a lieutenant. However, by the time of the novel, the process of passing for a lieutenant had become much more complex and much more overtly political. So firstly, it is important to realise that lieutenant at this time was not a rank, as in the modern military, but a post tied to a position on a particular naval vessel. The rapid expansion of the Navy during the Long War with France meant that there were far more qualified candidates than there were positions, leaving young gentlemen like William facing the very real possibility of having their careers stall regardless of their ability. Many prospective officers passed the board but were never offered a commission, leaving them condemned to stay either perpetually a master's mate or to defect to the merchant service or in a few cases to defect to the infant US Navy or the navies of the emerging South American countries. Gaining a commission therefore required two things, being able to pass for a gentleman and interest. Earlier in the 18th century, the Royal Navy had a surprising degree of social mobility, 
with a relatively large number of naval officers having started their careers as ordinary seamen. Captain Cook is a famous example of this, or at least famous if you are Australian or from New Zealand. However, as the power and prestige of the Royal Navy rose, its officer corps became increasingly seen as a desirable career for younger sons of the gentry. Of course, that was also something we saw in the last episode with the clergy, where becoming a clergyman became a much more desirable occupation when the income levels went up. Yes. The Navy was seen as having many advantages over the Army. The Navy did not require officers to purchase their commissions, and the prize money system, which was essentially government-sanctioned piracy, meant that the most successful naval officers could become rich. Whilst, unsurprisingly, Jane Austen regards this gentrification as a positive change, its impact on the Navy was both positive and negative, and that has divided opinion both at the time and amongst historians today. I should say that in discussing this, I want to acknowledge the work of two authors in particular, Brian Southam, who wrote Jane Austen and the Navy, and Samantha Cavill, an academic whose master's and PhD thesis both focus on Royal Navy midshipmen in the Napoleonic period. I'll have Harriet provide details of their work in the show notes. Yep, will do. So it has long been argued that this gentrification led to a greater distance between officers and men, leading to a weaker social bond and more discipline problems up to and including mutiny. This was also felt particularly to be the case with Royal Naval Academy graduates like Jane Austen's brothers. In fact, the reputation of her brothers, outside of Jane Austen hagiographic literature, rather supports this. Francis, in particular, was known as a cold and distant commander, and both of her brothers also had a reputation as what was known as blue light officers, overly religious officers who were overzealous in policing their men's morals and, for example, holding compulsory Anglican services for all ranks, regardless of whether they were Anglican or not. And it should be said that in the Royal Navy at the time, Anglicans were probably a minority, given where the Navy recruited from. Quite a lot of them were probably nonconformists or Catholic. Mm -hmm. This, unsurprisingly, did not win them many friends in the lower decks. However, Cavill's findings suggest that the issue was more complex than this truism. Whatever their background, naval officers still needed to demonstrate their competence, and after all, captains from lower-class backgrounds could still be harsh disciplinarians. Anyone who's looked at Captain Cook's papers held by the State Library of New South Wales will know this as Cook was a very brutal disciplinarian who flogged enthusiastically. So one effect of this gentrification had a direct impact on whether one passed for lieutenant because increasingly as these boards became populated with post-captains from the gentry class, a new secret criterion was increasingly used and that was that the candidate be able to pass for a gentleman. They have both the manners and the family connections to be acknowledged as a member of the gentry class. In other words, they wanted officers to be part of their own social world. And so many of those who passed the board who were never offered a commission, it was because they had failed to pass for a gentleman. And therefore, whilst they were recognised as competent 
In other words, they were offered a master's mate's ticket to become a senior warrant officer. The examining board did not put their name forward to the Navy that they be offered a commission. Mm-hmm. However, Jane Austen is at pains to show us that William has the manners of a gentleman, unlike his father, but she makes it equally clear that his future is in doubt due to his lack of the other essential invisible criterion required, and that is interest, having the backing of powerful naval and political patrons. So whilst naval captains did enjoy considerable privilege in terms of choosing their junior officers, and the reader might therefore reasonably ask, well, why doesn't Captain Marshall, who according to the novel was so favourably disposed to William, Why wouldn't he offer him a lieutenancy on his ship? Well, the answer is is simply, however well disposed he might be, we need to recognise that William would be one of many former midshipmen that he'd had under his command and would be competing with them as well as the relatives of senior officers, political and family connections, who are also seeking positions for themselves or their sons or nephews on his quarterdeck. It is in this context that we need to appreciate the enormous significance of Henry Crawford's intervention and the burden of obligation it imposes on William, on their whole family, and of course on on Fanny. And also shows how interconnected interest had become, so I thought I would read the relevant passage. The first was from the Admiral to inform his nephew in a few words of his having succeeded in the object he had undertaken, the promotion of young Price, and enclosing two more, one from the secretary of the First Lord to a friend whom the Admiral had set to work in the business, the other from that friend to himself, by which it appeared that his lordship had the very great happiness of attending to the recommendation of Sir Charles, that Sir Charles was much delighted in having such an opportunity of proving his regard for Admiral Crawford, and that the circumstances of Mr. William Price's commission as second lieutenant of Her Majesty's sloop Thrush being made out was spreading general joy through a wide circle of great people. I really like that. (laughs) So as the passage shows, gaining a posting increasingly depended on having senior naval and political connections. It is also, however, worth noting that in getting William posted to a sloop, They have done literally the least they could do, (laughs) making him the most junior commissioned officer on the smallest type of rated vessel in the Navy that would have a lieutenant as part of its crew. Incidentally, I should point out that the title of second lieutenant is not a rank, as in the modern US Navy, for example. Lieutenants were given a number in order of seniority on the vessel to which their commission was attached. So, for example, at Trafalgar, Victory had eight commissioned lieutenants on board, not counting the executive officer, who also held the rank of lieutenant. However, the eighth lieutenant of Victory very definitely outranked a second lieutenant on a sloop. The importance of interest was something that Jane Austen would have been very aware of. Southam's book includes letters from her father exhorting her brothers to do everything in their power to win the favour of their Naval Academy tutors and of their captains in order that their interest could potentially benefit their career. 
He also describes how their father actively sought out and petitioned the interest of various family connections with naval associations to promote his son's careers. So the discussions of interest in the novel would have been echoes of discussions that Jane Austen would have heard herself under her own roof quite regularly. So I'm only going to be talking about four of the pop culture versions today, the three adaptations and then the web series modernisation. As usual, starting with the 1983 BBC series with Sylvester Latuzel and Nicholas Farrell, it's, as is traditional, is generally following all the main plot points in more or less the same order. So Fanny is caught out in the rain. Dr. Grant goes out with an umbrella to bring her in. They do tighten things up a bit in that the conversation in the shrubbery is clearly the same day before Edmund comes to take her home. Um, But it does include the quote about being like the Doge and also the conversation about Mr. Bertram. One thing I did quite like, when Fanny is sitting in the carriage, she is looking absolutely delighted as if this is such a novelty for her to be sitting in the carriage going somewhere. Yes. And it does have a little bit about her wearing the white dress with the glossy spots. Henry has his conversation with Mary about wanting to make Fanny fall in love with him. And it finishes with him reading in one of the newspapers the Admiral has sent him about William's ship being in. So he he goes to Mansfield to tell Fanny about it, but William has already arrived. Oh, right. (laughs) But Fanny shows him the amber cross that William has given her. Then it cuts directly to the scene of speculation. Sadly, they've cut out a lot of the explanation as to why Henry is helping Lady Bertram and Fanny, but it does keep some of Mary's lines, and it does, in the background, have an argument between Dr. Grant and Mrs. Norris about how the whist has gone. Now, one thing that's missing is there's no discussion about Thornton Lacey and absenteeism, which is Mm. a little bit odd, because this, this version does normally try to be so very faithful, but they've obviously decided that's something they can lose. By contrast, as I think I said last time, the 1999 version with Frances O'Connor and Johnny Lee Miller. And around this time, it has things that just are completely not in the book. And it also shuffles the order a lot. So, for example, there doesn't actually seem to be a scene where Henry says he wants to make Fanny fall in love with him. What you have instead is a scene of Fanny is sitting reading in the library and Henry is kind of prowling around for no readily apparent reason he gets a book he asks Fanny what she's reading and he offers to read aloud from it this I did quite like he reads the section from Sentimental Journey about the starling saying I cannot get out I don't find most of the Henry's very charming but I did like the way he read this I did find it quite moving listening to it and of course that's also nicely harking back to a scene they didn't have at Southerton with Mariah Bertram saying I cannot get out as the starling said and it picks up on the scene in the book where Henry reads Shakespeare and Fanny is caught up in it. Yeah. So I thought that was a nice scene, although a little bit out of left field in that there's been no suggestion before that Henry is interested in Fanny. But the other thing that's happening with that scene is you have Mariah overhearing it because this is before the marriage. Oh, right. And after Mariah has overheard that, she goes straight to Sir Thomas And that's when Sir Thomas does offer to get her out of the marriage and Mariah says she wants to get married in a fortnight. (laughs) So in this instance, it's not that Henry has left, it's that she has seen Henry showing an interest in Fanny and that's what's made her angry and that's why she's determined to marry Rushworth. You do have Fanny getting caught in the rain, Mary goes out with the umbrella 
and Fanny is absolutely drenched. So Mary is helping her and she strips down to her chemise while Mary is drying her off and even starts undoing the things on her stays. Yes. Which is another sexing it up scene. Kind of unnecessary, I thought. And then Fanny tells Mary that Edmund is about to take orders and this is apparently the first Mary has even heard of it. So they've really compressed that side of things down. They've taken William out of it completely. No visit by William at all. And the game of speculation, and they do have the discussion of Thornton Lacey in this one, but it comes after the ball. So, as I said, the order is completely jumbled around. It's kind of, So it's fascinating to see what they do leave in and what they don't leave in in this particular segment. The 2007 version with Billy Piper and Blake Ritson, after the wedding, Fanny is playing with some random child in the library. Don't know who the child is. And Henry comes in to, as he puts it, revisit the scene of the crime because that's where they were having their rehearsals, I guess. And that's when he tells Fanny how unlucky they were that they couldn't put the play on and Fanny says everyone had indulged themselves enough. What social level is this child? Presumably it's some little child who's come with its parents to the wedding. Oh. So, yes, the child... No, but on the other hand, this is a sort of a period when not many people came as guests. All you need to do is see Fanny's hairstyle in this to know how much care they took with their period research. Yes, I was about to say, historical accuracy was not a major concern in this. So, and then still the same day as the wedding, Henry and Mary are walking back to the parsonage that's when he says he wants to make Fanny fall in love with him. This one doesn't have any scene of Fanny in the rain. All you see is Mary playing her harp for Edmund and Henry talking to Fanny in the grounds. But then William arrives. He's in uniform, which of course is explicitly stated in the book not to be the case because he's not allowed to. And you see William giving her the amber cross. And there is a nice scene of William telling stories at dinner and using the salt shaker and the cutlery to demonstrate the (laughs) naval movements. But yeah, no speculation scene or anything like that. Now, the only other one I wanted to talk about in terms of the modernisations is the 2014 web series from Mansfield with Love. In this one, the scene in the rain comes before the wedding. Mary has asked Frankie to meet her for coffee and Frankie is standing in the rain waiting for her and then she eventually contacts her on Twitter and Mary turns up. It's at this point in the web series that Mary starts making her own videos. And she is very condescending about Fanny, which fits with what I said in the book where I feel Mary's a bit condescending towards Fanny, but it's much more overt here. The other thing that I think is meant to get you offside with Mary, Frankie has been thinking that all these videos she makes for William, William has set up the privacy settings so he's the only one that can see them. Mm. Mary finds out that in fact the privacy settings haven't been set up so that anyone can find them. And she decides not to tell Frankie about it. Now, in this one, Henry again decides he wants to make Frankie fall for him. They do actually start to build up a friendship, but she still doesn't trust him. She actually explicitly says she doesn't want to be part of the full set of Mansfield girls that Henry has has made fall for him, but she has enjoyed the time she's spent talking with him. Yes. But then suddenly Henry tells Mary, I'm going to New York because I can't stop thinking about Frankie and this isn't good, so I'm going away goodbye. William turns up, which is fun, but they kind of rationalise a bit that I'm still going to keep doing the videos even though William's here and he's in them because it's still nice to look back on and it's got into a routine of doing it. There's nothing about him not being promoted. Um, The structure of the modern military means that it's... (laughs) Yeah, it's not something you can adapt. Yes. Uh, And that's basically what I had to say about the pop culture versions this week.
You've been listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me, Harriet. Me, Michael. And me, Ellen. In our next episode, we'll be looking at chapters 26 to 30 of Mansfield Park. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website, readingjaneaustin.com. You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time.